Today, we're going to be going into 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And as you're turning there, again, we, this, this, this passage itself is one of those passages that pastors don't like to preach on, or pastors are afraid to preach on. And I'm not saying that about Pastor Tom. <laughs> but it's one of those passages that doesn't seem to make sense at different times, and, and other times it says things that we don't like. But it talks about a very very important part of the church. We see the pastor up front giving the sermon. We see the worship, people sing the songs. We don't see the behind the scenes. We don't see the children's workers. We don't see the greeters. We don't see the, the Blessings Cafe coffee makers, the baristas or baristos. We don't see a lot of those people as far as this service is concerned. But God has a specific call for those people, and God has a specific call for us, both men and women. And the call that God has for women is what is explored and what is in this passage. And I would like to suggest that women are a gift from God, from the God for the church, and must follow God to do his work. That's the truth we're going to be exploring today. I'll say it again. Women are a gift from God for the church and must follow God to do his work. That's the truth that, is, that this text shows, and we're going to show it now. We look in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We just got off of a sermon from last week, which is a wonderful sermon given by our youth pastor, Pastor John. And he gave us a sermon and, and, and a command and a call to pray. A calling to be in prayer for the sake of reaching the lost. And it ended on verse 8, where it said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Then it says in verse 9, likewise also. So we're still talking about prayer. We're still talking about the, the, the context of reaching the lost. That's where we're at, and that's very important in this discussion. And we're still talking about the context of the local church service. That's what is being talked about here. And that context is very crucial as we continue on. Read with me in verses 9 and 10. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's a strange verse. It's one of those verses that we see and we go, okay, so if I look at, you know, oh, I'm not wearing one, but if we look at a wedding ring on our, on our fingers, or if you look at some necklace that is a family heirloom that you're wearing right now, if you read this very plainly without looking at the context, you're in sin. That's not fun. So let me, take a, let me suggest that we take a step back from our 21st century time and go back to the time in which this letter was originally written. Because when we look at this passage with our 21st century eyes, we miss the meaning of what Paul was saying completely. And so let's take a step back. And we know that 1 Timothy is a book written by Paul to Timothy in the, book, in, the, in the city of Ephesus, which is a part of the Roman Empire in the first century. Now, let me give a quick survey of the standings of women in the Roman world in the first century. In a lot of ways, the women in the Roman world were seen as second-class citizens. Women couldn't vote. 
for governors or elected officials, women couldn't own property, unless, of course, their husband died and he gave it to her. Though that didn't always happen. Sometimes it would go to a son, a brother, an uncle, or some other family member. And education was slim to none for anyone, let alone the ladies in the Roman world. There was no public education. There was no free way to go and to get an education. And so you had to hire a tutor to come into your home and teach your children. And if anyone had the ability to pay for that, we're talking the rich, we're talking the noble and the wealthy, they would teach their boys and not their girls. And so that's where we are. And there's this, it's this culture that's competitive and that's basically putting a foot down on the women at the time. And these women, they were facing all of these cultural pressures. And the first point that I want to suggest in this passage is that women are set free from the world's pressures. The women at the time, they would have seen these pressures and they would have known that there's not much they can do with their lives and so they would see if there's any way you could have some sort of cultural standing. And what they would do is they would wear incredible amounts of jewelry. They would braid their hair incredibly and illustriously, and it would take hours to complete. And they would wear necklace after necklace and rings after rings, and they'd wear these golden armbands, and they would have all this expensive jewelry, and that was your standing in society. You're as worth as much as you look like. That's how it was. And that is exactly what Paul is critiquing when he says this. He says, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. He gives us the, what the world's pressures are, and then in verse 10, he gives us God's freedom. He, he says for women, and this is something that God commands for, for the ladies in this room, just like he commanded for the ladies that originally read this letter. He said, but with what is proper for women profess godliness with good works. And that's, that's this, there's this pressure that the world went through, and there's this pressure now that ladies go through. It's not one that I can understand. I'm not going to try to understand it. But there's a pressure there. And, uh, and I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I looked up a study, talked about how women would, what, what characteristics women would use to describe themselves. And through the study, 96% of women would not consider or use the word beautiful to describe themselves. That's heartbreaking. Because I look out here in this auditorium and I see so many wonderful, beautiful women that God loves so much. And that, and, that he's say, he, and that Paul is suggesting that, it's, that there's this beauty that comes from being a Christ follower, from following God that the world may not have. And now, let me stop there because for some, maybe some, for some women in this room, they just stopped thinking for a second because they thought, okay, here we go. Preston's just going to get up and talk about how, you know, it doesn't matter what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that matters. It's this spiritual beauty. It's not physical beauty because my physical doesn't matter. All that matters is my spiritual. That's what he's going to say. But every single day, I still wake up and look in the mirror and notice I don't think it's getting any better. <laughs> and then now I start to feel guilty. 
But I think that we can take a step further into this and know that all people, not just women, but men, not just Christians, but all people have an inherent given beauty from God, the most beautiful thing that we know of. God created us all in his image. And we're, if we are in the image of the most beautiful thing ever, God's beauty has been known to drop men to their knees, to convert men on the spot, to destroy armies, and to lower walls. And that is in each and every one of us. And that's not just it. It's not just a physical beauty. There is a physical beauty that's there, and that's valued, and that's a virtue. But there's more. If some of you don't know, I'm in a dating relationship right now. I know. And thank you, Barb. And she's actually here today. And her name is Kezi. And I met her when I was in high school, and we got to know each other a little bit, started dating. We've had a strange history. We've dated. We dated for about a year and a half, broke up another year and a half. It's a complicated thing. Got back together and started dating again. And if you were to look at Kezi, the first thing that she would say is, dang, she is beautiful. <laughs> you would say that. And I've seen that, and, I've, and I love that about her. But that's not the only reason that I love her. Because when I'm with her, or when I talk to her, or when I'm just around her, or when people talk to me about her, they mention to me things like, wow, Kezi cares for people. She is so compassionate for people. She has a heart to see people fall in love with Jesus. When I see her, I don't just see her. When I see her, I see the characteristics that God has put in her so that she can show not only me, but the rest of the world how great our God is. And if there's any married men in here who fell in love with their wives, for that very reason, I know they would agree with me. Ladies, you all have a wonderful gift. You get to show me, you get to show the men in here what God's beauty is like. You get to show us more about who God is. That's something that God, in this point, in this passage, is commanding you to do. Help me fall in love with my Savior. Help us men fall in love with our Savior. Women are set free from the world's pressures. Why is that? Because women are a gift from God for the church and must follow God to do his Next point. Verse 11. Read with me, please. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. That's one of those really tricky verses. Really, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. And when we look at that verse, what are the two words that we see? We see the word quietly and we see the word submissiveness. Those are the two words we see. Those are hot topics. Those are very cultural issues in this day and age. And again, that's our 21st century eyes looking back on a first century text, and we're reading it wrong. When, when Paul would have written this letter to Timothy, and when Timothy would have read this letter aloud to the church in Ephesus, they wouldn't have seen the words quietly with all submissiveness and been amazed or been alarmed. They would have seen the word learn. Again, we have to remember, first century Roman Empire, education was slim to none as it is, let alone education 
for the ladies. And here, Paul is commanding, he's saying, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. There was no free educational institutions in the world until God came to the world. And he left us with the church, the most beautiful bride of Christ that could ever be assembled. This was revolutionary for its time. The very first human institution that offered free education for all people, men and women, young and old, all races, both genders, is the church. God is commanding that women should, must learn about him and grow in their knowledge. And then we see the words quietly and with all submissiveness. That word quietly, there's two different words in the original Greek language that had to do with being quiet. There was one word, one word that was completely take the voice away from someone, is to void them of their voice. And there's another word which means to quiet down or settle down, almost like imagine this whole room talking and me coming up and starting the, the, the service and everyone kind of quieting down. And that word itself is what the word here is. And so this is not saying that women should never speak in church. It's not saying that we need to take the voice of women so they just sit in their pews and sit quietly and learn and don't cause any trouble. That's not what it's saying. It's saying when there's service going on, just settle down. That's what it's saying. You can imagine the reason why Paul would have felt compelled to write this is that when you look at the first century and you look at the women there, they were used to not having any rights, any freedoms. And then all of a sudden, God comes in. And all of a sudden, God gives them a freedom that's brought through the death and resurrection of Christ. And they say, that's a great freedom. I want to use that freedom. And they would have been using that freedom. But you can imagine that they were using it during church service. Imagine if I'm here talking and then somebody just gets up and starts yelling or singing or whatever else. It's going to make it hard for you to hear both me and to hear them. It's going to be a distraction. This is what Paul is commanding against. He's saying, ladies, learn. Grow in your knowledge of God. Develop an intimate relationship with him. But just relax. Let God's word show. That's what it's suggesting. And then we see word with all submissiveness. And that word itself is, again, a difficult word. Because a lot of times, the word submit has been used to, turn, to make women a beautiful thing that God has given us into just a doormat. And I want to tell you, that's not what is being said. Submission isn't something that's only for women. Submission is something all throughout the Bible. The Bible is very familiar with the word submit. Just a quick overview in, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, and 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and 14, it's talking about how all believers need to submit to the ruling governing authorities. We need to submit to the government that God has put over us. We must submit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says that believers should be submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. There is almost this ability to worship God through submitting. Submitting literally means to lower yourself or to humble yourself under someone else. But why is that giving reverence to Christ? 
Well, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, this is the story of Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying before he's going to be arrested and crucified, and he's praying to God. It says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Think about that for a second. Jesus was willing to submit to the Father's will to, bring, to go through excruciating pain to be able to save our souls. God was willing to submit to God. And we are commanded to submit to each other. This is not a command specifically for just, oh, women need to really, really, really submit. It's saying it's a specific application for general command for Christ followers. We all need to be it's submission to each other, lowering ourselves, valuing others, putting others above yourself, letting others' value be shown forth over yourself. That's what's being commanded here. And so we get from this my second point. The first point was that women are set free from the world's pressures. The second point is that women must learn about God. Ladies, again, this is something that God has commanded for you to do and that God wants you to do and that I and the men here need you to do. We need you to do this. We, I need you to grow in your knowledge of God. I need you to, to look into the scriptures, to understand the story and structure of God's word. I need that. And you need that. We all need that. If you look at a pastor's or any sort of scholar, biblical, theologian guy's library, a majority of the books, I'm talking 95% of them at least, are written by men. They're not written by women. And I feel like that's a bit of a, that's a, how do I say this? But it's, it's not something that is serving the church Ladies, God has commanded you to grow in your knowledge of God, to look into the intricate doctrines of theology, to look into the structure of Scripture, and to show me more about who God is, to show the men here more about who God is. And men, we're not out of the, we're not, we're, we're commanded to do the exact same thing. It's a working system. We work together. It's a body. It's a family. We need to be growing together in our knowledge of God and showing each other about the greatness of our God. It shouldn't just be the pastor up front giving everyone the spiritual nourishment. We all need to be guiding each other and helping each other to grow in Christ. Women must learn about God. And that brings us to my third point. And that third point is that women must live out his, his truth. For that, look at verses 12 through 15. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's a there's a lot 
in that section. So we're going to break that section up just a little bit. Let's specifically look at verse 12 for a second. And it says this. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, I don't like that verse. I don't. But we have to wrestle with God's word. If we're going to believe that God is true, if we're going to believe that this is true, we need to wrestle with all parts of God's word. And the question in this, and the thing that has divided so many people, so many Christians, is those words, to teach or to exercise authority. The question is, what does that mean? Are the, the question is, are those two separate actions, or is that one collective thing? And the main argument lies in the middle there, that small little word, the, most, the biggest disagreements in the church are done through the smallest of words. And the word is just two letters, it's or. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. That word there, it's a Greek word, it's, it's the Greek word ude. And it's a connection word, it connects two words together that normally would be two different things, but pulls them together to form one specific thing. And so this, this Greek word ude is connecting these words to teach and to exercise authority together to form this sort of authoritative Authoritative proclamation, authoritative teaching. There's a lot of people that agree and disagree with me, but that's how I will stand. I, that's how I stand with the text, is that it's a connecting word. It's this authoritative teaching. The next question we have is, okay, what is that? And we can find that through, as we look through the structure of 1 Timothy. Because again, this is a, this, there's structure to this letter. It's not just a hodgepodge list of random commands. There is structure with it, and it makes sense, and it pulls itself all together. Turn back with me to the first part of 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 3 and 4, and we're going to move our way through 1 Timothy. This is after the greeting that Paul gives to Timothy. And when you think about it, if you see somebody and you're desperate to give them information, as Paul was, then you want, then the, you want to put the most important things in the beginning. And this is the first thing that Paul says. It's the first thing that Paul says to Timothy after he gives his greeting. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. For the record, by the way, in between verses 3 and 4, there's that to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves. That word nor is the same ude word, the same word. It's the connecting the two words together, different doctrine and devoting to myths. It's pulling it together and it's showing this necessity that the church needs to have proper scriptural godly doctrine. The church needs absolute truths about God. This is the most important thing, and we see what's at stake here when we go to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 1. We see that in, 19, in verse 19, part B, it says, by rejecting this, which is faith and a good conscience, which is the proper doctrine, it says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that's what's at stake here is people, are, people don't have the proper doctrines, then they turn away from the faith. Souls are at stake here. That's how important proper doctrine is. That's what's at stake here. 
Then we get to chapter 2, where it's talking about urging all people to pray, the power of prayer for the sake of reaching the lost. Then we get to our passage in verse 9 through 15. And then into chapter 3, it's talking about the qualification of overseers, which is also known as elders, which is also known as pastors. A pastor is an elder. Not all elders are pastors, but all pastors are elders. And there's this qualification of a church leader. And if we look through the qualifications, there is only one qualification that is an actual skill to be a pastor. There's only one qualification that's an actual skill. The rest are character qualities, being above reproach, not being a drunkard, self-controlled, But the one skill necessary to be a pastor, at the end of verse 2 in chapter 3, it says, able to teach. That's the one skill that's necessary to be a pastor. Everything else is character qualities. And Pastor Tom will talk more about that next week. But what I'm suggesting here is that the role of teaching the scriptures to the church is a foundational and important and crucial part of the ministry of a pastor. And I would like to make the connection between the authoritative teaching that that Paul talks about in verse 12 is this teaching that pastors have for the church today. It's this authoritative teaching. It's this knowing what proper doctrine is and sharing proper doctrine to the church. You might say, what does it look like practically? Okay, I'm not a pastor, so I'm getting up here and I'm preaching. But if Pastor Tom hears something that I say, and, I, and he doesn't like it, or he says it doesn't, agree, doesn't go along with Scripture, he can come to me and say, that was wrong, and here's why. And by me needing to submit to the leader above me, will say, okay, I understand that. That is wrong. I will not teach that in the church. I may have the ability to get up here and preach, but I don't have that authoritative teaching role that is specifically designed by God for the pastor. And that is what verse 12 is talking about. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This leads me to the conclusion that God's word says that the role of pastor and the role of elder is specifically given by God for men. I hear amen. I don't like that. Because I know so many ladies, so many of my sisters in Christ that have incredible leadership potential, that have incredible teaching abilities, that have incredible shepherding abilities where they care for people. And I can imagine there's many women in this room that can get up here and that can preach a way better job than I can. But the question is, why is it that the role of pastor is the only place to exercise those gifts? I would say it's not. There's a book that I found uh, that I read for a class. It's a very small book. Very small book. It's called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Rules. It's written by Kathy Keller. She's the wife of Timothy Keller, a pastor out in New York, and you might know him as author of The Reason for God or The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, A lot of different good books that are circulating in the church today. And his wife wrote this book, which is arguing the same point that I am. And she has a specific quote in here where she talks about using gifts in a specific place in this book. And I'd honestly, I'd recommend this book. It's a very short book. It's like $8 online. 
I'd recommend you buy it. It goes more in depth on this topic than I can in just the time that I'm given. And so let me read this to you guys. This is talking about using, ladies using their gifts in the church. Here's what it says, and I quote, In one unforgettable lecture, Elizabeth Elliot, one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, taught me to distinguish between gifts and the roles in which those gifts might be used. She announced to her class of both men and women that she had better gifts for being a pastor than most of the men in the class, possibly the entire seminary. It's a bold claim. She continues, she knew the Bible in multiple languages, had vast experience in expositing it and preaching it and teaching it, and had the maturity bought through suffering to speak with compassion to others. And on and on she went. However, she said, God has not called me as a woman to exercise those gifts in a pastoral role. I am called to use them, but why should they only be valuable if used in one particular role the ordained ministry. I'll always tell you, I don't like this verse, guys. But it's one of those things where if we're going to trust that God is perfect, then we have to trust that he didn't make a mistake here, just like he never has made a mistake. And that tension that we're wrestling with right now, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to wrestle with that tension and I encourage us to continue. I've been encouraged that all week people have been talking about this. Some people more lightly and jokingly than others. I don't see any tomatoes up here. I appreciate that. But we're talking about it, and we're wrestling with it, and that is good. And that goes along with the point that I'm suggesting, is that women are all say, the church must live out God's truth. That's what God has commanded us to do. We continue in this passage, because when people look at this verse, they, they, they might, some people might interpret it and say, well, it was a cultural context. It was, uh, it was only for the people in Ephesus. It wasn't for the universal church at large. It wasn't for all of us. It was only for these specific people and these specific times. That's, a, that's an interpretation that some people will follow. I would disagree with that, and the way that I would, and I would use verses 13 and 14. Read them with me, please. It says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, we, so Paul almost uses this as an argument, as evidence, and going back to the original creation story in Genesis, where, he, where God created man from the dust of the earth, created man in his image, but then God said, it is not good for men to be alone. He said, I will make him a helper. And through a series of events, God made women to complement and to help men. But he designed it in this original sense for men to have to step up and to be the leaders. We look at this, and then we see in verse 14 where it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. A lot of people have taken this verse to suggest that women are easier to tempt into sin or that women are more susceptible to temptation. That is one of the biggest lies that I've ever heard. <laughs> Let me tell you. And... In reality, this verse is not a critique against Eve. I would suggest that this is a critique against Adam. Because when Eve was there, and she was eating the, about to eat the forbidden fruit, and Satan was tempting her, where was Adam? He was right there with her. He wasn't saying anything. 
He wasn't helping her. He wasn't pointing her to the truth of God. If we're going to believe that there's a specific roles that are established in Scripture where the men are supposed to take charge and to be the leaders, then we men need to step it up and actually be leaders. We wonder why certain women want to step up and to teach doctrine and to be influenced and to lead the church. Maybe a lot of the reason they're doing it is because men aren't doing their job being leaders. Men, how are we doing? Love you, Rashad. <laughs> but men, if God has given us this command to lead our sisters in Christ, then we better do that. And we need to examine ourselves. Are we leading them? And are we leading this church the way God wants us to? That's a personal question that only you can wrestle with, with God. And I encourage you to. We get then to verse 15. Let me read it one more time. It's been a little bit... And we'll, we'll read it and you'll go, are you serious? Verse 15, yet she, being women, collectively, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Do you ever just wish to go back and to talk to Paul and say, why did you write this like that? Why did you write this that way? I don't know why you wrote this that way. And honestly, it doesn't make much sense when you initially look at it. This is one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. And again, I applaud the structure of our senior pastor for giving me the ability and responsibility <laughs> to teach this verse as it's properly described in the Word of God. So, But when we look at this, the first thing that says, that says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If we, a lot of people have thought that this verse suggests that women will be saved through childbearing, through being moms. And that is wrong on two different occasions. First of all, it's wrong because we see in Scripture that the only way to salvation is repenting of your sins and believing that the Lord Jesus died for your sins and rose over them. It is by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believing in your heart that he was raised from the dead. And if you haven't made that decision, I encourage you to talk to me or to Pastor Tom or to Pastor John at the end of the service. But we know that scripture tells us that. We also know that if women are saved through childbearing, then if there's any ladies in here that haven't had a kid yet, sorry, you're not saved. Obviously, that's not what it's saying. That word saved also means delivered. And this is, a, this is Paul encouraging women to do the thing that they get to do and that men can't. That is, create life and bear children and rear children. And some of the ladies in my room might be, in the room might be saying, wow, giving birth, what a blessing. <laughs> but God... But and when, we, when we look at being a mom, and when we take a cultural survey and look at how the world thinks of being a mom, a lot of times the world says that being a mom just isn't enough for women. It says that it, it lacks and it isn't giving women the full potential that they are naturally given. They need to get up out of the house and go out and do something. I'm not here suggesting that all women are going to be moms. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I'm suggesting is that God here says women are delivered through childbearing and also childrearing. It's the same that this one word connects being a mom, having birth, and raising kids. And we forget about the blessing of being a mom. 
If anyone's been a mom in this room, then they know that they get to raise their kids and they get to be their kids' primary discipler. They get to show their children the ways of the Lord. They get to read scripture to them on a daily basis, pray with their kids, and to lead them and to give them a godly example. Ladies, this is the blessing that you get. And I'm not saying that men aren't to parent and to be an example. In fact, look at Joshua chapter 1. It'll tell you that men are to still lead the household and to be that example. But ladies, being a mom is your ability and your gift to your children. And when you talk to a mom who has been able to sit down with her kids and help them to become a Christian, they will tell you that all the arguing and disciplining and changing diapers was absolutely worth it because they got to help their kids meet Jesus. That is something that women get to do. Now again, not all women are going to be moms, just like not all men are going to be pastors. And so let's expand this out a little bit. Let's suggest that wherever we are called, whether we're called to, someone in this room are called to childbearing, childrearing, being a mom, or if we're called to be working full-time, if we're called to be a teacher in the church, if we're called to work in the cook's line and prepare the food for Wednesday night, if we're called to minister to the children in this church, if we're called to serve in the sound booth, in the light booth, and if we're called to be greeters, if we're called to be deacons, if we're called to be trustees, whatever you're doing, wherever God has commanded you to be, you continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You grow in that. You take that calling that God has given you. Whether it's being a pastor, whether it's being a student in school, whether it's being a mom, being a dad, or being none of those things, where has God called you? Wherever God has you, you go there and you do it 150% for the glory and honor of God. Women are commanded to live out God's truth. Why? Because women are a gift from God for the church and must follow God to do his work. I was really nervous in preparing this sermon, and one of the reasons I was is because this sermon historically has been a sermon that has said, well, women can't do that, women can't do that, women can't do that, women really can't do that. And it's just been a sermon that's told women what they cannot do. And I hope and I have encouraged and that I've, and I pray that the ladies in this room, my sisters in Christ, know that God has given you a calling, God has given you blessings, God has given you beauty, and God has given you a command to live out his truth in wherever situation you are in life. So that when people come into this church that don't know who God is, that they would not just see one part of the body working. They wouldn't just see the men they wouldn't just see the women. They wouldn't just see the old or the young. They would see all parts of the body working together for the glory and honor of God for the sake of reaching the lost. 